Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net. Episode 18, go. Take it away, Patrick. So I had my parents visiting, and we went to, being in the Bay Area, we went to try to do some of the touristy attractions, and we went to the infamous Alcatraz, which sits in uh, San Francisco Bay, and you can kind of see it from my It's this ominous old building, kind of like a lot of rundown skeletons of buildings that used to be there. No, not actual skeletons. (laughs) Did you take the the picture from behind the bars or whatever? No, I don't know. Actually, I didn't. Okay. Um, But it was kind of interesting, so try to keep this semi relative or at least maybe interesting to people um so you see like movies and stuff growing up at least here in the states about alcatraz this prison for hardcore mobsters in like the 30s and i guess it was around that time maybe like the mm-hmm. 30s and even before then there was like a military base there or whatever but yep. this is where they sent all the really bad people and uh, there's several famous escape attempts and various famous prisoners that were held there and then eventually the prison kind of closed because it was like really horrible. And also people in San Francisco were kind of like realized it was maybe a bad idea to take all the worst criminals from the country and stick them just a few miles <laughs> offshore from like a really big city. Yeah. Um, although like that bay is really dangerous and filled with all sorts of ways to die, you know, it's still maybe a bad idea. Did you know during the summer they have a swim, a, a duathlon? where they swim from Alcatraz to San Francisco and then run a marathon. Yeah, I did see that. And the, the tour guide was uh, quick to point out that those people do it in a wetsuit. Actually, they have some people who do it without a wetsuit. I happen really? to work next uh, to somebody who's going to do it without a wetsuit. That's crazy. And uh, yeah, I thought I just I just thought people died doing that. Like I didn't think that it was safe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's different if you're like trying to do it in cover of darkness and disoriented and not coordinated, yep. Yep. right? Like this could be really bad. Versus like middle of the day, you know what you're doing. It's safe. But, okay, so anyway, so, so we go to the, the prison, it's just cool, you know, if, you, if you're around and you haven't done it, you should do it. But I thought it was interesting because having seen it all this time, I really thought there was, like, all these different buildings and, like, rows and rows and rows of jail cells, and it was this massive thing. And it's really not. Yep. I mean, a lot of prisoners were held there, but it was a pretty small area where they were I think it was held. in the hundreds, right? I don't remember the exact number, yeah. but yeah, just not a lot. And it really fits. There's three levels, so it's really high. Um, but they're open air, like it's just the cells are stacked in three levels. It's not like three floors, and you can see from top to bottom. Yep. Um, but just to see how small it was. And so they've done something really creative. I, I guess it's like social engineering, let's call it. <laughs> yeah, so you exactly. get there, and then you, you take this boat ride over, which is cool because you're you know, going San Francisco Bay on this boat. Yep. And then you get there, and then they you know, give you a, sh- you know, a little speech for like 10, 15 minutes about all the stuff you're going to do. And then they direct you to walk up this long hill to where the prison is. And then they give everybody headphones and this little device, which gives you an audio tour. Yep, complimentary. Yeah, for, included. Well, you pay oh, for. That's true. You, you have to pay for the ticket to get there, right? So, right. So, but then they give you this thing, and at first, I. But oh, the point is, is that everyone has one because they're free at that point. Once yes, you yes. Once you're there, in. if you can get there, you know, you get these for free. Yep. And so then you're touring around. So I, I noticed a couple things. One is that at one point I took my headphones off and um, was just, I don't remember, taking pictures or something and I had paused it. And you look around and you just see, you know, hundreds of people like wandering this gel like zombies. Yeah, because they're all going in the same direction. The same path. But like... But like overlapping each other. Yeah. And like not paying attention to people around them and bumping into each other and just... Yep. 
like completely mindless. <laughs> yeah. It was really creepy and so weird. Awesome. And like I, I don't know, just it was very very strange. And you could tell like what part people were on and like what they were doing. And so yep. so that was kind of creepy. But the second thing is the social engineering part is getting at is that. Because it's so small, you would be very disappointed having paid, I don't know, it was an extraordinary amount, like $30, $28 or something to take this boat ride there. Mm -hmm. um, but to go and, like, you would look around and you'd be done in, like, an hour yep. and leave. And, like, you'd be like, oh, that's kind of, like, disappointing. But instead, they give you this audio tour, which most places charge for you to take the audio tour. And they even have, like, guided tours. And so it makes you take a lot longer. And they take you on an inefficient path. And yep. they kind of have you looping over yourself and revisiting the same places, but with kind of different story or different view or looking at something on the wall a slightly different way. And it really makes you feel like well, you got your money's worth. And uh, I felt kind of bad having pointed out to my family after this tour, like, no, oh, wow, that was kind of, like, not that yeah. good. Like, you know, uh, the story was good. Like, this audio was a good thing. But, like, it was really not that interesting or big if you really think about it. It's sort of like The Matrix. And you're outside of The Matrix because you didn't have your headphones on. And everyone else is sort of, like, like just really entertained by something, which is really actually, in the grand scheme of things, like, very tiny and, like, completely controlled by this, like, audio program. And so you're outside of it and you're, like, realizing these people are walking between, like, four or five rooms. But like to them, they're just spending hours in this massive yeah, like maze. It was kind of so. So take it, it; it's worth going. Now we've polluted it, I guess. Now like you're gonna feel bad doing it, but uh, yeah. But, well, I mean, I, I think it's okay. You I do think, it once. You yeah, do it once. It's, I would if you had to pick between uh, Alcatraz and Golden Gate Park. You should pick Golden Gate Park and like the West Side and like see the bridge and stuff like that, or like go on the bridge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was worth doing. I, I don't mean to talk down about it, but it was just this this like aspect of this audio tape thing, which is yeah. It was a very intriguing to me that people are so easy to tune out everything around them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I, it, interesting. I, I, now I'm going to be more attentive when I go to touristy places to see how they're manipulating. <laughs> so it's obvious, like, Disney is very into this, right? Yeah, they're you pros. Know, most, like, controlling everything, like, how you experience this Disney magic and what they do to do that. And yep. Yeah, so. All right, on to, on to tech news articles. All right. So speaking of being in jail, how do you come from that? I don't know. <laughs> a group of researchers uh, used a interesting technique of, I guess, what do you call it, nanofabrication, mm -hmm. to reach the ultimate resolution of color printing. So I read this story a couple times before I figured out what was going on. But what they did was essentially were able to manufacture these metal dots spaced very, very close together. But all the dots are the same color; they don't have pigment to them. They're very, very tiny. Um, and they're all just metallic, but based on their spacing, they're spaced about half the wavelength of light apart. And by altering very slightly the distance between the dots, they're able to generate color based on what waves can get through between the dots, like oh. the posts, and which ones can't. Um, and what they're saying is basically that, that by doing this and making this color picture, which is, is fairly tiny right now, it's like only like five micrometers by five micrometers, um, which I guess humans can only see down to about 10. But making it this small, they've reached, you cannot make a color picture that is of more resolution because if you put the dots closer together, they'll just blur together and won't have like the color aspect of oh, it. Because your together. eye isn't sharp enough? Is that because of the actual physical properties of light. So light has a wavelength, oh. right? So if you make something two dots closer together than that wavelength, the waves can't resolve them. It can't tell the two things apart. It looks like one thing. So it's like, you know, the classic story of, I guess you hear this in physics, of if you try to figure out what object is in this room by shooting, you know, first like 
beach balls at it and then like baseballs at it and then you know like tiny bb's at it and you what gets through and what doesn't depends on the size so this is like trying to see it would be like at the point of where they reach you'd be trying to see you know what a I don't know, like a can of soda with a beach ball like just too oh, big like you can't saying. you can't tell that it's there maybe that's a bad analogy anyways no i see what you're saying yeah i got yeah you. so it's uh 10 no hundred thousand dots per inch which doesn't seem that high because like printers do 10,000 dpi it's only 10 times more resolution than that um Oh yeah, you're right. So it's not incredibly high, but but it's the maximum. Yeah, it's not possible we'll ever to do see. more. That's so these insane. people, like, it's cool because these people got there first and they win. Like nobody. Can, <laughs> yeah, there's no. There's no more race. Like they, they finished. So it's so funny you mentioned this because I just saw a TED talk today on um, a tr- uh, trillion FPS camera. Oh. So a camera that could record a trillion FPS, and it, it can record so many frames per second that they actually like. Um, fired like a small beam of light and you could actually see like the beam of light like enter this piece of glass and like fragment through the glass Whoa. so you could actually like slowly like it was like a slow motion like a uh, video of light whoa yeah yeah oh, i have we'll, to check that video we'll post both links <laughs> but yeah it's, it's amazing like what are the chances that uh two like huge milestones in terms of like you know, dots per inch in terms of pictures or frames per second were both, you know, reported in the same day. So close, yeah. That's yeah. pretty awesome. That's kind of cool. Um, so the next article I had here um, was about this uh, this company called Joint Cloud. And Joint Cloud did something which a lot of people were upset about, but I thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss, which was when they were first beginning, and they, were, they actually had a different name previously, they offered people who spent, and I believe it was like on the order of $500 or something, they would get a small hosting account. So this is a, a, a website host, um, but they're a slightly different. They're like a infrastructure as a service kind of thing. Oh, I see. So um, you know, think more kind of like EC2, I guess. Um, Amazon's a kind of equivalent thing. Um, and so they were offering for $500, if you paid them this $500 uh, in about 2006, I think it was, that they would give you a lifetime of hosting, shared hosting plan for a lifetime. And they were a very young company, so giving them a lot of money up front for something that they may go bankrupt in a year or two, that was uh, pretty risky. So people gave them this money and they used that money to help you know fund their startup or whatever. So now turn... 2012, what, like six, seven years later, and they've sent out emails to all of the people who have this account and said, basically, you know, we're ending your account. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're no longer, this is a legacy account. We're no longer going to provide it. We're going to give you a year free of, you know, our new equivalent plan, and we're going to end your plan. Um, Is that reasonable for them to do? Is that unreasonable? Yeah. I don't know. It's a tough call, right? Because... They took this gamble, and they sort of like they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? Like they took this gamble of getting their initial following by pr- by providing this like amazing service, and then now it's sort of like they want to cash in on those people, but also cash in on the their support that they gave back when they were new. So it's really, I don't know. I, I guess you know one thing: it must be a large segment of their population, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have spent the social capital to do this right okay interesting i I mean i don't know it's one of those things where it could be that they're a small percentage but a large expense so that the Uh, servers are on so i was reading an article that was related to i think united 
did something similar where they offered for the sum of like oh yeah three hundred thousand dollars or something. It was like a lot of money. You yep. could buy like lifetime tickets basically. Yeah. Where you go anywhere in the world on I think it was on United. Yep, that's right. Anywhere in the world, anytime you want, and you could buy a companion one for some additional fee. And yep. so the people did. People spent like what amounted to like a lot of their savings to buy this, saying that for years when we retire we'll be able to, you know, just travel around we the want. world. And, and it, you know, it's like this is cool. But it turned out United kind of crunched the numbers when they were having some bank problems that these people who paid, you know, like $300,000 are costing us on average like a couple million dollars a year yeah. and like like taking up seats. And they got all sorts of like priority service. And then there's all these accusations of fraud like, oh, instead of, you know, a person in their spouse flying, the person would just book a ticket but book the seat next to them for, you know, under a fake name just so they wouldn't have to sit next to somebody. Uh, and doing things like this and so there's just like he said she said between United and the customers where they're trying to revoke these lifetime tickets because of this abuse um, And but yet people paid a very large sum of money and if it turns out United didn't crunch the numbers correctly whose fault is that? Yeah, yeah I mean it's hard to say right one, one kind of interesting thing that I thought about was it, I've been reading this book called The Lean Startup and uh it's kind of it's a really interesting book. I haven't read enough of it to like talk about it in any depth or anything. But the chapter I'm on now is um, what's called the minimum viable product, and the idea is sort of like you cut any corners, you do anything you can to like get something out the door that like people will want. And so this is sort of an example of this where these guys they didn't really have a plan of like how their pricing model was going to work or anything like that. So they just did like the bare minimum that they knew everyone would love, got it out the door. But but then like and, and so it like we really worked for them, but then I feel like, you know, they that's an investment and, and so they're sort of like they're defaulting on their investment in these people, you know. But it's kinda of sad that this has become and some people are even saying like shame on the people who bought this for assuming it actually be you know, kind of a lifetime. Well, because I mean, this has happened over and over again, right? Like, yeah. you used to have unlimited data, and it turns out, oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's not actually unlimited. So it turns out, like, so I guess people are just not going to trust. You yeah. Know. So in general, now you just can't trust when people say unlimited or lifetime yeah. or any of this stuff, right? It's just not, not true, right? Because you, we have a bunch of those uh, forever stamps. Uh huh. And I think it's just a matter of time before they're like, well, the forever has come. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's interesting because so the forever stamps the post office offers says if you buy this and then we increase the cost of a stamp, we'll just you can use the forever stamps. Right, but it actually they have some incentive to keep doing it because then they don't have to keep changing print runs for the new amount, so they can print a lot of these forever stamps and just essentially sell them for whatever they want. Right, um, and they don't have to keep printing new stamps with a new number on them. Right, right. So it's somewhat in their advantage to keep doing that, which is a safety as a consumer that they'll want to keep honoring it because. Oh, I there's see like a saying. cost savings for them to keep doing these. Yeah, that makes sense. So, makes um, sense. which is different than a company offering, you know, a completely unlimited or, you know, lifetime style membership. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, realistically, the price of a stamp, let's say it goes up 10 times, right? That's not as bad as these lifetime memberships where it's probably hundreds or thousands of times, you know, value. Yeah, and, and so you can say, well, give them back the money they they gave but the thing is like well the people don't want back the money because like your point the service is worth more than the money they gave yeah now in hindsight it seems it's a really great deal that they made but at the time it was risky yeah so you need to like give them back in proportion to the risk they took but on the same hand like if these people are costing too much money and it would drive the company out of business 
what what's the like you know like say like what's the right thing for the business to do yeah i mean why should the company have to like fold and then reinvent itself just because it made a promise it can't keep it's hard to say but they should because they made a promise right? <laughs> yeah. so like they should have to keep that but if the company goes you know goes away because this is too expensive these people are going to lose their plan yeah it's basically the same thing. it's the same thing so it's the same outcome for them so yeah it's a really hard thing so just be yeah. careful if you're starting a service just plan for it to not like plan to go on right don't plan that like oh we'll go away in a few years so yeah. like this isn't a hard promise to keep and in general i've noticed that i've become really suspicious of temporary anything so in other words like like cable companies are notorious for this it's like you know i used to have cable tv and every year they i would get like half off my cable bill and it would last for a year and at 11 months i would call the cable company and say i'm canceling and they're like oh we'll extend your special offer and so turns out like everybody i worked with everyone in the office was on the special offer like it wasn't really that special you know but like uh but just things like that like scream like like scummy and like be careful you know what i mean so it's like anytime you see like unlimited or you know half off for the next year or whatever it's always like makes you for example uh, i was uh, getting a ssl certificate for trivopedia and um there was one it was godaddy they were having like half off for the first year and they wouldn't it was very hard to find out what it was the second year and it turns out it was this ridiculous price. Like, mm. it was, like, 3x what I could get somewhere else for the second year. And so just things like that. Just be careful for, like, like temporary things or unlimited things because, you know, it's it's never going to last. Yeah. yeah. So basically, you can't trust everything you read on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, shocking. <laughs> so the next news article is uh, on Apple buying a fingerprint company. And, yeah, I saw this story, actually, and I thought it was kind of interesting I'm not quite sure what... Does the article say what they plan on doing with it? Well, of course, it's Apple. No. But <laughs> yeah, everybody exactly. has an opinion. Yep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so there's a company who made fingerprint scanners and had a lot of technology. And they had to make an SEC filing because I, I believe they're a public company is why. And so right. they have to disclose that Apple is trying to buy them and that they're entering into negotiations. And then somebody has to go and approve it, I guess. And um, So Apple... They've disclosed that Apple had been trying to make a negotiation to license some technology related to 2D fingerprint scanning mm -hmm. and that uh, now Apple wants to buy them. And so people are speculating that either in the, that they're in a hurry, that it seems like everything is very rushed versus normal. So that it might be as early as this year's new iPhone or iPad that might be coming out that they might have some sort of fingerprint scanning as a two-factor authentication ah, or something like that. that so sense. So two-factor authentication is Something you know and something you have is is a typical two factor. Yep, and there's three factor, right? There's, yeah. Next, look I up. think that adds like something you are, but something you have and something you are seem kind of the same to me. But I might be getting that wrong. All right, so first factor is like username and password. So those are not considered two factor. Although if you want some interesting reads, go read about um, Microsoft. You know, not that I want to rag on Microsoft, but they had an interesting <laughs> post about whether or not they were going to add two-factor authentication to their new Outlook.com, and they considered username and password two factors. But the reason that's not two factors is because that's two things you know. So it's the same. So if somebody figured them out via the same means, right. they could hack you, right? Yep. So, that's, so, so just to recap, so a username, a password, something that's sort of in your head that you can just blurt out onto a machine or device, that's one factor. Yeah, so, yeah. so those are the same factor, right. username and password, because they're both something that's in your head. Right. But they're also something that if an attacker 
like was able to hack a database, they would have both of those. Right. So right. versus when you add two factor, typically that next factor is something you have. So right. this is like World of Warcraft has RSA keys, which are little uh, pieces of plastic. Wait, World that, of Warcraft? Yeah, I think you could for like certain World of Warcraft people, really? they get, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, that's Or other online, or banks do this, yeah. or yeah. many companies that's do this for their cool. VPNs. Yeah. Um, so it basically amounts to a physical device that you have, a little piece of plastic that yeah. has a number on it, and that number changes every so often. Right. Right. And so the interesting thing about that is you have to type it in. But even if somebody managed to steal the number that you typed in, it was only good for 10 seconds, 30 yep. seconds, a minute, five minutes, whatever, however frequently that number changes. And once it changes, they no longer have access to your account because they don't have that object. Right, so and if even, they if, even if they have like a sequence of numbers, a lot of these number generators are like algorithmically designed where you need thousands or millions of numbers right, in sequence to, to guess the, the next one. Ideally, nobody would be able to guess it if they knew one number, then the next number, then the next one. They shouldn't be able to figure it out, Right, but yet, it's not random, it's not like a random number generator, although it looks like it. It's not right. because the person on the server needs to be able to also know what the number is supposed to be. Right. So that's typical, like the, the two-factor thing. Yep. Well, but something you have could also be your fingerprint. So interestingly, this okay. article, yeah, so I'm gonna pretend like I know the reality okay. is, right, I'm totally go. cheating for those of you at home and, and reading Wikipedia, but, but the third factor is something you are, and so a fingerprint or okay. something which um, like is actually physically part like, like a view that, that cannot be rubbed. like you could give voice, the yeah you could give the RSA key to somebody else but you can't give them your finger so, I think yeah. that's the okay analogy. so it could be two factor could be like password and fingerprint right or three factor we give password fingerprint and RSA and key RSA. yep you know yep. or OTP one time password there's various names for these things mm -hmm. um, and so yeah so it's interesting that the iPhone might have this or maybe that's how you log into a device like you have to hold your finger down and you know, it's a secure yeah. thing. And people have lots of issues with fingerprints because, you know, fingerprints are pretty easy. They're not considered as safe as some people think they are. If you get oh, someone's really? fingerprint, now it's that. hard because you have to know the person. But like if you touch a mug and then I oh. get that mug, I can actually lift your fingerprint off the mug oh, and I then see. put it on. Like it's pretty easy for me to fool most fingerprint scanners. But in reality, that's still far more secure than an iPhone, which just normally isn't even locked, so your data is not protected at all. Yep. Um, so. And I mean, a password, like, uh, I think they have password crackers and things like that. Yeah, or somebody can just sit there and guess them or look yep. at the smudges on your screen or most oh. people don't. You know, there's like all sorts of There's like an expert phone cracker oh, here no, in the no, audience. No. <laughs> That's genius though. But you're totally right. Like, let's say you had someone's phone and you're some kind of digital forensics expert, you needed to get in. You could probably measure the amount of wear on the different parts of the phone, and I would give you some guess as to yeah, and like a super comp. But I mean, even just looking at the smudge pattern, or I mean, most people things are going to be birthdays, anniversary years. Yeah. So if you really know the person, you're going to guess. Or I bet a lot of them are zero 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 yeah. one two three four nine 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 nine. Right. I mean, just try the first twenty things, and you're probably going to hack 50, 60, 75 percent of yeah. of phones out there. But a fingerprint is nice because you know it, it should be easy to do. You just set it if it works really well right and this is great so interesting nobody knows right it's apple it's secretive they don't say anything but that would be very curious to see if it comes to their mobile devices or whether it's something more mundane like being on the laptop which other companies have done before yeah i know that like one thing that apple seems to boast in their smartphone uh you know like propaganda or like commercials or whatever is that uh is how fast it unlocks um, mm. Like that seems to be like a like a feature. Like it always says like oh you can you know 
be like from phone in your pocket to using your phone like faster than any other phone. That's like one of their one of their like key features. And so like adding a fingerprint where you don't Ooh, have to type in a, a code. Oh well, no no actually that's even good. Make okay. it go faster. Oh, yeah. Because hmm. I mean it's much faster to just put your thumb on something than to punch in. But four it has digits. so so my thing is another thing Apple prides itself is it should work and be simple right yeah and fast right I mean this is the kind of thing. But fingerprint scanners I don't know if you've ever used them but all the ones I use tend to just be terrible. So they, they had one uh, at my university to get into the gym. They used fingerprint scanners and actually worked really well. I mean, oh, okay. but but I will say that uh, I've seen other people have probably. Like, so, so so basically either it works or it doesn't. Like, like it seems like <laughs> so if, if you're one of the. it works for you, it works really well for yeah, you. Yeah. If you're one of the 8% or 3% or whatever, because I've seen people just sit there at the fingerprint mm. scanner and it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well. I mean, so like if you're the FBI, you probably, you know, do some image detection on a fingerprint and you have to match. 15 distinctive features on the fingerprint or whatever. But I mean, for some of these fingerprint scanners, maybe they only have to detect two or three features. Mm -hmm. And then that's enough to, you know, just a random person having the same fingerprint match on two or three points of view. It's probably fairly low. Right. It's not unique as we think of fingerprints, but, you know, it's a one in a hundred thousand chance that just picking up a random person's phone, you're going to have a close enough match to get that. Yeah. So you, you can increase reliability that way. Yep. I mean, you think about it. If somebody takes your phone chances are that phone's going to go through maybe 10 people's hands like like someone will t- someone will steal your phone that person might try to get in might not who knows if they can't get in they'll probably try to sell your phone on ebay or something so so your phone will go to a third a second a third person but it's not going to cross more than like 50 people yeah so so if the scanner can be good enough to where the 51st person happens to have a close enough fingerprint that's okay Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's all a statistics game of yeah, reliability. Yeah. This is a, a common thing, right? False positive versus false negative. Yeah. So the person whose phone it is wants to get in every single time, but everybody else in the world should not be able to get in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is a hard thing to uh, to balance. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's a good article. Ta- talking, yeah, talking about companies that uh, change how they what they're doing in life. Twitter has been in the news a lot. Yep. So Twitter made a lot of waves when they went from kind of being focused on the web to start, I think their first thing was they made their own client and people got a little worried, but then they started buying some big clients. I'm not getting the history exactly wrong. No, I but, think you're right. But now they're making even bigger waves where they're telling third-party clients. So if you are trying to make a website or a piece of software that connects to Twitter um, and displays tweets on your own, but you're not Twitter, you're going to be limited to 100,000, did it say? 100,000 right. users. Yeah. So no more than 100,000 people can use your service. That's kind of weird. Like, why would you... That's such an arbitrary number, right? Well, but, but even the number, like, that's weird that, like, we're limiting, you cannot become popular. That's basically what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, no matter how great you are, you cannot become popular. Not any other, like, it seems like a lot of other ways to limit it. I don't know, but that just seems weird. And I guess for existing, they're doubling it. So, like, you can have 200,000. So it, this is kind of weird. I know there's like limits on how many, or there sometimes are limits on like, if you're a third-party client per username you have, you can only make so many requests, right? To help try to prevent like denial of service attacks, these kinds of things. Maybe they're worried of people, like maybe they've had people just scrape the entire Twitter corpus. But I mean, it used to be one of the things where they would provide that to people, yeah, like yeah. provide the stream, right? And maybe that they- was interesting because people did all this analysis about you know, what all the tweets were about and sentiment analysis, trying yeah, to see if people were happy that. or sad. Or did you see the Olympics that? Did or, you read that article on uh, this guy could, within like 100 meters, figure out where you lived 
based on like your tweets and your friends' tweets, etc. Um, but that's insane. not surprising. <laughs> yeah. So you think about it, it's like what what it did was it tried to it sort of like searched you and your friend network, etc. And tried to find like one or two people that had a good bearing on. Like somebody says, for example, uh, I just went to the San Francisco Giants game, right? So it knows that person's in San Fran. And then it like kind of used this like inference diffusion algorithm. But like within 100 meters. 100 I mean, meters is really insane. good. But the other thing is some people have location data attached. So that makes it even stronger. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, so some people will have location data. Some people will mention things that are like definite unique locations. Um, and then even once you have that, you can kind of start like, oh, I went to McDonald's. Well, you probably went to McDonald's close to where all these other things are. Uh, so yeah. now I can start to get even better and closer. Yeah, yeah. And so That's yeah, that, amazing. That is crazy. So Twitter is very valuable, but now they're making a it, – it's kind of an interesting thing. They have all these third-party – and that's how they got big. Again, they use these third-party clients. People weren't going to Twitter.com a lot. They were using all these other Twitter clients, and now they're basically getting rid of those. And, it, you know, people say, well, why? And, I mean – we d- the one thing we discussed when we brought up this article before we started recording, which I think is interesting, is that these people are accessing Twitter through an API. So Twitter's value is in these 140-character tweets yep. that, that you're following or whatever. But that means if, if all they're saying is, like, I issue Twitter server requests to say, give me Jason's tweets and his friend's tweets, right? It sends me back these 140-character texts. That's the response I expect. But how do you advertise through that? Well, yeah. you can inject fake stuff, like here's a sponsored tweet, but eh, that's pretty easy to either just filter out, right? Because you know that's a not in the person's list of friends or, you know, just show, but it's not a big deal. But you can't, I can't give you like an image to show, like, hey, you need to show this ad as well. You know be interesting is if you had to create a session. So, so in other words, like you had, you, you asked Twitter, you said, hey, I want to open up a new session, like in your API. And then that session gave you, let's say, like 100 tweets an hour, let's say. I don't know, I'm making that number up. But it gave you X tweets an hour. But then if you wanted another tweet in that session, you had to, like, they gave you an ad that you had to show. I guess there's no way to know they that know you they showed actually it. showed the ad. Yeah, that's... This is a complicated thing. This I is mean, tough. the other thing is that they could charge you per access or something, right? Yeah. So then that third parties would have to, you know, give that cost on. So right. either you pay a one-time fee and they hope you don't, you know, you spend more than that. Or, I mean, I, there's all sorts of weird ways I guess they could try, but they've just decided, I guess, this is the way they're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, the problem with this is that there's no path forward. Like, let's say you had an app that had, you know, hundreds of thousands of Twitter users and was very popular and, and highly monetizable. You know, I guess you could contact Twitter directly and negotiate with them. But, I mean, this policy doesn't just kills your your business well it just prevents the businesses from ever starting right right people just won't start a twitter business now yeah right but this is interesting because i guess other people like uh you know facebook or you know even like a google plus or other places they they start that way right nobody can access their data right and then no there are no third-party clients and then slowly they kind of sometimes let out a little bit of an api to do that Twitter kind of started the other way, like, oh, we're going to make this available for you. And then now they're kind of becoming more like just Facebook or Google+. Plus. Yeah. But that kind of, I don't know, that kind of ruins it. Like, then it's not different anymore. Yeah, it's just exactly. another social network. It's just one where you can't post as much. <laughs> yeah, you just have, yeah, you, yeah. you can't post the picture. I you have actually, to post a link to the picture. So, so, yeah. Do you have a Twitter account? I do have a Twitter account. So I, I actually have a Twitter account that other than getting hacked, I haven't done anything with it. So I've, apparently I've made tons of posts, but none of them intentional. <laughs> um, 
But I just never understood it. Like, and maybe you could explain it to me, but like, it seems like Twitter is just like a subset of what you could do with Facebook. Like, I didn't quite so, understand I, the Twitter I mean, concept. so things have changed, right, the environment. But when it originally came out, for me, what the, the draw was, I could follow, it was, it was asymmetrical, which Facebook wasn't. Ah, so okay. Facebook was symmetrical. Right. If you were my friend, I was your friend. So that means if you're a celebrity, right, and I was your friend, you got to you could see all of my stupid posts that you didn't care about because you're a celebrity. Gotcha. Uh, and then I could see all of your posts, you know, like all of them. So in Twitter, the difference was, first of all, it was public. So anybody could see any post you had. So there was no expectation of privacy. And ah. then there was this asymmetric part. So you didn't post things there that you didn't want everybody to see. So that was good. And from me, like being aggravated at Facebook for how they deceive people about privacy. I like the fact that it was just easy. Everything is visible. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. public, right? But then there was this asymmetric thing. If you're a celebrity, I could follow you. You could post something and I could see it, but you didn't necessarily have to see everything that I posted. You could have a different set of people that you followed as a celebrity ah, and you would only see their information. Now I right? get it. So it's, and, and then Google Plus kind of did the both kind of best of both worlds in a way, I guess, mm-hmm. but there's not as many people there, but doesn't seem like anyways that but this best of both worlds that i think just about everyone on google plus is a programming throwdown follower so <laughs> we have we have a few hundred followers it's yes. about right the, um <laughs> but you know the it, google plus is both like right like i can do asymmetric following right but if it knows that we're both in a circle like i can share stuff to this group specifically yep. versus having to make it all public right exactly yeah so, makes sense so is, yeah i guess i can see it now i mean definitely like so twitter is, is is commonly used in like nbc for example will say you know check our twitter and it like now now it makes sense because it it's public because it then makes when you sense post that to be like hashtag olympic gold or whatever the thing they put at the bottom of the screen on during the olympics nbc you know olympic yeah. gold or whatever when they do that they can boast like oh we had hundred thousand people use our thing right and that's yeah. measurable for them if you did that on facebook you would have to like friend them and right. they wouldn't necessarily have access to like everything that you were posting related to that yeah that makes sense so oh, i mean the nbc olympics would get me on a huge tear yeah, let's not let's not uh <laughs> yeah. let's not get patrick, that. patrick gave you this like he knows how upset i am that like i don't we the, haven't even uh, talked about it but that, I know uh, how upset I was. I know how upset everybody else I knew was. <laughs> yeah. So I like let's not even. We had to proxy through Europe to watch the Olympics. Anyway, so so um, tool of the bye tool week. of the bye week. <laughs> Anyways, actually, I have an Olympic okay. prediction, but I'll tell it later. Um, a what prediction? I have an Olympic prediction. Um, Olympic. Here we'll do it real okay. quick. All right. So before, before pre tool of the bye week. So last Olympics, I made a prediction that I was going to be able to watch the Olympics in two thousand eight. In two thousand eight, okay. I made a prediction that in two thousand twelve, I was going to be able to watch the Olympics, like either on YouTube or on something like YouTube, all of it. And that came true if you were not an American, <laughs> if you're with, if you're in one of the ninety seven countries or whatever that. That, that I, well, you were not in a like first world, like a large developed country. So it seemed like the no, list England was, mostly, was on the list. Was it? I'm but that's sure. because everybody's a BBC subscriber already. They already all pay for BBC, whether they like to or not. Oh, if you have right. a t- I think if the way it works, now I'm probably getting this wrong. In the UK, if you have a TV, you have to pay for BBC. Ah. So you already have to pay a subscription. I didn't know that. Right? It's like included. I don't know if it's like a tax or a license or a fee you pay. Okay. So like they don't have cable providers like we do. So... That was my prediction, and that sort of came true. Okay. My prediction for the next Olympics is okay, that... Okay, wait, wait, sorry, I messed it up. Is this the 2014 Olympics or the 2016 Olympics? Oh, you mean the Winter Olympics? Rio or Winter? 
I think I'll say Rio. Give myself okay. an extra two right. years buffer. Okay. By then, definitely any followers will have forgotten. So, <laughs> so, but maybe you remember. No. So the um, the prediction is that either using peer-to-peer technology or someone like Microsoft or Google like buying the exclusive rights themselves, one of those two things will happen, and you will be able to for free watch the Olympics online. That's my prediction. I, I would agree with you, except. NBC has already bought the rights, I think, through 2018 or 2020. So regardless, they, they, like you would have to pay, and you'd have to either a buy NBC, which owns NBC. Oh, that's devastating. You'd have to buy the company to get the rights, or you would have to pay them to agree to give you the rights. Like you would have to sublicense from them if they're even allowed to sublicense. That's that just crushes my spirit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that actually so that eliminates option number two. We still have peer-to-peer video streaming. So, well, are you, I assume you meant legally. Oh, well. <laughs> well, if you say illegal, you can watch this one for free. Yeah, okay, but it's not very accessible, right? Like, my grandma can't watch it for free. Easily. There, there yeah, okay. Get into <laughs> I mean, she has to, like, change words. your DNS and all this stuff, right? I mean, yes, yes. So... Uh, there will be some peer-to-peer technology which is like unshutdownable. And you know, there's also other websites that had Olympic content, and you'd go to it the next day, like day two of the Olympics, and just an FBI logo, and like the FBI just sees that website. Oh, wow, I didn't yeah. know that. But okay. yeah, yeah, you must go to different websites than I do. No, literally, like <laughs> just, I just yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did this to this other. No, I'm just kidding. So um, yeah, so okay, interesting prediction. That's okay. my predictions. That so, so the biggest problem I had is. Oh, we want to use all this social networking, but you had to stay off of every social network. Even so, even if you get over the air free NBC channel, like their one channel that only broadcasts some of the things that were only based. So in America, they only broadcast things that they thought Americans would be interested in. Yeah, they basically turned it into a reality show. Yeah, about that's true. certain athletes as opposed to certain sports or certain just whatever. Very strange. Yeah, like there's virtually no team sports. Like, and I'm well, pretty sure that's on purpose. Th- um, well, there were, but uh, regardless. So I mean, they're in the minority. It, yeah, so if you, even if you watch the thing, you had to stay offline because they didn't show it until many hours later. So right. if you went online, you would see what's, who won this yeah, thing. Yeah, ruin it. It would just be everywhere. Yeah. And so then when you watched it 16 hours later, like, yep. it, uh, yeah, that was the part that killed me is I couldn't go on anything or I would accidentally see who won. Yep. Right. Even yep. the sports that NBC was showing or I knew was going to show that I might be interested in. I they were ruined by the end. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I totally so, had that happen. Yeah. I went online to see what sports they would show, and that was uh, ruined. Yeah, it. now Google News will show you yeah. who, who won, right? <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. All well, right. I implied that you used Google. I have no idea. Maybe you're a Bing user. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Bing News showed me who won, but fortunately they were wrong. So, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, so tool, tool of, of the, the bye week. Um, so my tool is GNU Cache, or is it GNU Say that three or times GNU? Fast. I never know. Is it new or GNU? Like, do you pronounce the G? I'm not gonna pronounce it. All right, maybe you could look that up. I'm not gonna fall victim. I think it's I think it's new cash. But anyways, it's G N U C A S H new cash. And the idea here is um, two syllables. GNU. Oh, it is GNU. That's what Wikipedia's pronunciation key says. Wow, learn something new every day. So GNU cash is um, like many programs. There's GNU Chess. There's GNU Go. There's GNU CC, the, the C++ compiler, and, and, and the GNU Foundation um, manages a bunch of open source platforms, and GNU Cache is one of these open source uh, programs. <clears throat> and so 
what you can do is you can go into like your bank or your credit card or other financial institutions that you're a member of and you can export to any format you want actually like Gadoo Cash will take like Microsoft Money or uh, Quicken or the QuickBooks, the new Quicken, they'll take any of these formats. So, so you export your data. It's like for February, you export your you know, credit card, your bank statements, etc. Then you go into GNU Cash and you import these things and it will do the job of sort of matching up. So in other words, if you used your checking account to pay your credit card, it'll match those two transactions together and like create a, what's that called? Uh, double logging or something? Anyways. Accounting? The accounting thing? Yeah, yeah when I like forget. when you match the two. Anyways, yeah. so um, Gadoo Cash will do all that for you and it'll try to intelligently, and it gets better at this the more you use it, guess at the categorization of your entries. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the beginning, it actually starts knowing nothing. So like, for example, you on your credit card, you paid for Shell gas. So Shell will show up. And uh, so you put on there gas. But then through like fuzzy string matching, it over time starts to learn. So uh, now it's at the point where it's kind of trained. We've been using it for a few months and it knows most of our expenses. Like nice. this is video games, this is nice. gas, this is, yeah. And the other cool thing it does is it shows you like every month or you can pick a range of months. It'll show you like pie charts and bar charts showing like yeah. how you're doing and what your big ex biggest expenses are. And I cry a little every month when I see like was like a hundred plus dollars a month going to cell, oh. cell phone bill, <clears throat> excuse me. But, uh, but yeah, it's good to sort of be aware of your expenses. And we were talking about this before the show. It, neither Patrick nor I have like a set budget, like, oh, our expenses are gonna be X dollars a month. But the better thing is to sort of have this adaptive budget. So, you know, if over time you see, oh, my video game expenses keep going up and up and, you know, I'm getting addicted to like buying things on Steam and not playing them or whatever, <laughs> as, as I guilty. am. <laughs> guilty. So uh, uh, you could say, oh, I'm going to tone this down. I'm, not, I'm only going to buy one thing on Steam this week. And so it allows you to sort of self-regulate. Yeah, this is a common like mind hacking thing yep. is that if you want to help make something better, if you just make it visible. So it's yep. not exactly visible where your money is going each month. And people tend to have problems spending less than they make. Yep. Um, which is, you should be doing that, spend less than you make, it's important. Um, Definitely. And if you make it visible though, right, like you see how much you're spending in various things, you begin to be conscientious of about it. So even if you're not trying to make it go down, you will make it go down. That's yep. typically totally. what happens. Just like this, when they put up a speed limit sign that tells you how fast you're going, even though they don't arrest, like that sign doesn't send you a ticket or anything for the most part, just showing you your speed, people automatically slow down because yep. they feel bad and like, oh, other people are seeing me, right? Like I need to go slower or um, efficiency of your car. Like depending on how fast you're going or how fast you accelerate, your car is differing levels of uh, efficient. But even if you don't care about miles per gallon, if you put a meter on there that shows mile per gallon, studies show that you will make your miles per gallon go up. Yep. Just it's human. Like you want to make it better. Yeah, I mean, anytime you see a number, you want to make it go either whatever up or direction down. <laughs> that it's supposed yeah. to go. Yeah. I noticed that there's a community center that I play volleyball at where the speed limit signs are all prime numbers, really? and like yeah, like in the in the uh, like actual place where you park, like in the in the specific place where you're passing all the spots, the speed limit is seven. And then when you're getting ready to like exit on that sort of main atrium, it's nineteen. And I just thought that like that really caught my attention, and so I thought that was pretty clever. I wonder, it's probably not prime. It's probably trying to make it something that you have to actually try for. So if you make it like fifteen or twenty, 
people kind of confuse the hash marks, right? Like on the car. And, oh. Right? So like making it a weird number, you have to like count the hashes and be like, oh, I need to stick it here. <laughs> yeah. Or at least you think about it. Yeah. Like you don't see a lot of sevens or, or 19s. Like right. I, that's the I first time I've ever seen a 19. Yeah. So just making it something different uh, sort of for gets you out of, uh, um, what do they call that? Like blindness. Like so, so there's a term called uh, X blindness. So it'd be like, like in this case, speed limit blindness, where you, you pass by so many speed limit signs every day that you just become blind to them. Just subconscious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this time, it's like you see a 19, and you're like, whoa, like you immediately start paying attention. Yeah. yeah. So GNU Cash does this. Yeah, it is helpful. Yeah, GNU Cash keeps you from uh, broke blindness. <laughs> yeah. Spending yeah. blindness. So what's your tool of the bye week? My tool of the bye week is 7-Zip. So 7-Zip nice. is an open source Windows tool for uh, doing all meeting all your compression and decompression needs. Yep. And being being the guy who like always like pretends to do like four tools, but it's really for different OSs, I'll add P7zip, which does this for OS X and Linux. Oh, okay. Yeah. Alright, alright. So seven zip so I mean how many times you go on a you know forum somewhere or see something and people are like, how do I unzip this or how do I <laughs> yeah. so it's like uh, so get seven zip. It'll do all your stuff. So people it used to be like WinRAR or yeah. uh, what was I forget the WinZip or whatever it was one of Windows. But now yeah. it's just like Seven Zip. Um, I have it installed. Uh, what they call it shell extension. So you can right click on a, on an archive and then just say extract to folder. Extract and first of all, Seven Zip's really fast, so it's yep. nice. Um, and it's you know you don't even normally need to bring up the GUI. It has a GUI, but I hardly ever bring it up. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just works, right? Like you just it's nice. Like you don't have to think about it. It's just the tool to get. And it's not like WinRAR used to be. It's like what is that called? Uh, pesterware or something? Yeah, so, like, you get it's that pop up. Free, but like you're supposed to pay after a certain amount of time. And if you don't, Nagware. it pops up. Nagware. Okay, yeah. yeah and you know, kind of like. But Seven Zip's not like that. You just install it. It just works. They have their own compression format. Yep. I think like .7z. Yep, it's um, LZMA is the type, is the uh, is the format. Is the algorithm? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, but it works for RAR files. It works for zip files. It yep. works for tar.gz files, you know, that you get from, from Linux stuff if you ever need something that's that. You know, it just works. I think it even works on ISO files. Like I think an ISO yeah, container, like, open like you them. can unzip yep. the ISO into its component files. Yep. Um, of course, some ISOs can contain stuff like boot sectors and things, so I, I'm sure it probably just ditches those. Yeah, probably. Um, but like all the files that are there, it'll extract. So it's really useful. Yep. Um, and 7-Zip is like the best compression you're going to get without knowing the media. You know, like if you're not uh, like like an MP3 will always beat 7-Zip because it's lossy and yeah, it's well, made it's lossy, for so it's cheating. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you don't know what you're zipping or you just want a general utility, 7-Zip will give you the best compression. Oh, nice. Out there. Nice. So. so, yeah, I recommend that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Multi-threaded, too, so it runs pretty fast. Yep. And yeah, it's good yep. stuff. Definitely yep. get that. Yep. All right, so on to our programming language of the week. I don't even know if we announced it. I guess we did announce it at the beginning. We're covering Go. Yes. Go, go. Maybe they, you go, know. Go, go, gadget. If you did, <laughs> if you didn't know, you might think that I was just telling you to start talking. Like Lee. episode eighteen, go, and then you go. just start talking. Ah. <laughs> yeah, Patrick left the building. So uh, yeah, so Go is a um, Go is actually an imperative language that uh, was invented at Google, oh, okay. but it has sort of a lot of nice, like sort of functional characteristics that make so it. So it's really pretty new, right? Yeah, so... About two uh, years ago now? Something like that. I mean, Go 1.0 came out, what, uh, March? So that's, what is it now, August? So yeah, just about six months ago, the 1.0, like the official version came out. 
before that they had sort of like these release candidates that okay um that that had varying levels of functionality <laughs> like batteries like as far from included as possible <laughs> even like i remember when it first came out a couple of years ago you needed to download um a library just to print to the screen like Whoa. you had to go on the internet and get like another package for for, for printing and i was like this is ridiculous yeah um but now you know they have a lot of those things included like file io and printing and all that stuff <clears throat> uh, is uh, is all totally in there now. So the thing that I remember when I first started hearing the press releases about Go and people talking about it, as people tend to do anytime Google says anything, um, was this, it was built for multi-processor environment. Like, you know, now there are computers of many cores and that kind of stuff. And that it was going to be, it's not multi-threaded. I remember it wasn't, but people said that it was built for things that have multiple cores and multiple processors. So what do they use to do that, that concur- handle concurrency? Right, so they use GoRoutines. And um, GoRoutines is sort of a play on words. It's a play on coroutines, which I think we've talked about, actually, on the Did, show. Okay. But I'll just recap quickly. Um, so uh, you have, let's just go through the layers. You have processes. And so if you ever go to, like, your task manager in Windows or you type top in Linux... Or on the Mac, you go to the, uh, what's it called, activity monitor. <clears throat> you can see a list of your processes. Like, I have Chrome, I have Firefox, I have, you know, Adium, Instant Messenger, etc. Um, that's like the highest level of granularity. And so starting up a process is pretty time consuming. And you're not supposed to have thousands of processes running or hundreds of thousands, right? You're supposed to have just... Not unless you're infected like, with malware. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Our parents probably have... Well, maybe not oh. your parents. Your parents are pretty tech savvy, but I'm sure my parents have thousands of processes. But anyways, so, so you're intended to have, you know, 20, 30, as many as you have programs running, right? Um, then the next level down, a process can create multiple threads. And so threads can sort of allow you to do two things at, at exactly the same time. And you can have different threads running on different cores of your machine. And so you get, you know, n-way parallelism. So let's say you wanted to, um, let's say the 7-zip, for example. So 7-zip will take, let's say, let's say 7-zip knows you have four cores on your computer. Well, they'll take your file, split it into four chunks, and do the compression on each chunk on a different thread on a different core. And so once it's done, all those threads will come back together and merge the chunks. So that's threads. But in many environments, you actually want... So along with with processes, you can't have that many threads. Like you can actually only have a few hundred threads total. you some operating systems i mean some if you have enough memory and things you can get to a thousand or even two thousand it's extremely rare if you're making an application for everyday users you can't really feasibly go over a hundred threads safely so um but you might want to do a thousand things at the same time right like that might make your program easier to write easier to understand maybe if you're doing like disk kind of stuff you know, you might only have like 90 of these that need the computer, the CPU at one time, but you have the other like 900 waiting on the network, mm-hmm. right? So to do that, they invented coroutines. And the idea is coroutines is something that sits on top of thread a thread pool. So you might have, let's say, your application might have 10 threads that are all just kind of sitting there waiting for work. And you might have 10,000 coroutines. And the coroutine says, hey, I have stuff to do. Give me a thread that's that's available. And so you have up to, you know, let's say four coroutines that can do that. And then once they're like, oh, I'm waiting for the hard drive, uh, you know, this thread can work on another coroutine. 
So coroutines have been awesome. Um, Stackless Python is one of the first programming languages that had coroutines. Now Ruby has them. But uh, for people who have heard of EVE Online, the MMO, um, that whole thing runs on a few machines that have Stackless Python. And every AI is running its own coroutine. So if you imagine there's like millions of computer opponents in the game, and each one of them has a coroutine mm. that's sort so, of running so at its own pace. The interesting thing about EVE Online, well, one of the many interesting things about yeah, EVE Online phenomenal. is that as opposed to most multi massively multiplayer online games where there's essentially parallel worlds where mm -hmm. if you exist in one world, you only exist in that world, and it's not easy to travel to another world, and all player activity doesn't exist in just one world. But EVE Online... Every player logged in, every all exists in one common shared world. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the reasons why they were able to do that is because they picked a technology that scales so well. So, I mean, if it just wouldn't be possible to have... I mean, a lot of these, like, World of Warcraft and things like that, they might do, like, a thread for every zone AI. Like, like each zone will have, like, for all the AI running in that zone, one thread. And so if you follow that logic, you can only have a few hundred or a, a thousand zones, right? And then you have to, you know, use a new machine. So, <clears throat> so Go, you know, understood that, that coroutines are awesome and that um, we want to sort of like take advantage of that. But they also understood that a lot of people who need this kind of tech aren't Python and Ruby programmers. They're guys who do like low level um, you know, like networking or like this back end for World of Warcraft, like heavy data processing and things like that. So they created a language that was very similar to C or C++, yeah. but with this coroutine support. Looking at Go code, it really does look a lot like C. You can almost, yep. almost just read it like it's C. Yep. Yeah, it has the option of being strong or weakly typed. Um, you can actually do like X um, colon equals and then anything. So if, if you change the return value of the function, now X's type changes. Mm. Um, but you can also be explicit and say like, you know, um, yeah, it's actually backwards. It's really confusing when you see it for the first time. It's like X int equals, <laughs> which is like, it really throws you off. But yeah, you can say effectively like X is an integer and it's equal to the output of this function. And then if the function output changes, you'll get a compiler error. So it gives you that safety that you often need when you're doing these like critical backend, you know, like if you think about it, you can have a front end in JavaScript as most you know browser front ends are. And if something crashes, your program will keep running. Like let's say you're using uh, Gmail or Yahoo Mail or something. You go to open a mail and your JavaScript crashes. You'll just try to open another mail and you're okay. You know, or you'll reload the page and the whole JavaScript engine will refresh. Um, if your backend crashes, you're in big trouble. <laughs> like if the thing that writes the database crashes, then like everybody's host. That's when the server goes down. Yeah. That's when you say that the website's down. Yeah, then then everybody on using your service gets the screen with like a team of monkeys has been dispatched to fix the problem. <laughs> uh, or the whale with all the balloons. Oh, I haven't seen that one. The fail whale. <laughs> That's awesome. What is that on? Oh, yeah, this is a Twitter one, right? Oh, all I know is the YouTube one. The team of monkeys has been dispatched. But um, actually, there's the crying robot, too, um, on Gmail. But anyways, so, um, so yeah, so if a Go is an attempt to sort of give you that safety that C, C++ gives you, a strong type and everything, and even give you more safety because... Uh, Go has uh, garbage collection and safe pointers, so you don't have to worry about buffer so you can't overruns. Do arbitrary pointer math. Yep. Oh. Well, actually, the crazy C I operations. Think, no, you're right. You yeah, can. it's memory safe. Yep. Know. Yep. It's totally and memory safe. It can be type safe. Yep. 
So yeah, you can't you can do crazy like you can add pointers, but if you ever go out of bounds, yeah, you'll get a runtime error. As opposed to like in C where it'll just kinda let you do Depending crazy on things. if you do something bad or not. Yeah, yeah. Like if you have some kind of static thing, it'll like if C you can allocate a huge array and then have smaller arrays inside of it and do all sorts of funky things with memory. You can't do that with Go. But um but they try to still, as opposed, they try to give you some ability to kind of lay out memory and control more how memory is yep. done so that it still stays efficient because you can have more control over how things are done because you know you know what it should act like. Yep. As opposed to just, you know, kind of, I think the way Java more approaches it is like, doesn't really give you any control over that. Like, look, no, we know we know what we're doing. You just write your code and we'll handle everything else. Yep. But sometimes you can impart knowledge. Like, hey, I, I know, like, give, let me give you this hint to like, Hey, put these things next to each other because I'm going to keep using them over and over again. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, Go gives you that. Go gives you sort of that flexibility that you can do that lets you do that, which is awesome. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, so Go works as we mentioned with Go routines, and the way that these routines talk to each other is through channels. And so the idea is, if you've ever used a concurrent queue in Java, you know what a channel is. It's exactly that. So what a concurrent queue is, uh, first let's talk about what a queue is. A queue is a, I always get this mixed up. First it's a, in, first out. Uh, is that, a, yes, that's a queue. I always get those two mixed up. For some reason, like. A queue is, 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 like, is like literally like a pipe, like the, yep. or like a line when you queue up to get your Starbucks or your McDonald's or whatever. Mm -hmm. The first person who gets there is the first person who gets served. And everybody who comes next, if there's somebody in front of them, has to wait behind that person in front of them. Right. But it, like in the case of a stack, which is. Last a in, first out. So right. The most recent person to get there is the most re is the first person to be served. See, the, I know I found out now why I get it confused. Because I think let's say you have a, a bunch of things already in the stack, and you put a thing in the stack. I think that that's sometimes I can think that that's the first thing, because it's like that, the thing you just put in. <laughs> but that's totally wrong. So just to clear it, um, the the thing you just put onto the structure is the last thing. Yes. And so when the first thing goes out, the most recent timestamp. Yeah, that's a good way of the event. It. Yeah. That's the last thing. And so uh yeah, so a queue is a first in first out. And um you can use these uh channels which are queues to talk to talk between amongst go routines. And the interesting thing is it's it it can be blocking. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. So for example, um, you could create 10 Go Let's say you're implementing 7-Zip, for example. You could create 10 Go routines that would compute 10, uh, you know, that would compress 10 chunks of memory, you know, one each, and then would pass the compressed chunks through one of these channels. Then in your main program, you would say, you know, go and then the first function, go space second function, go space third. And then at the end of the 10 functions, or in a for loop, at the end of that, you could have another for loop from 1 to 10 where you just read from the channel. And you block. So right. even if channel 5 finishes before channel 1, you won't look at it because you're waiting for channel 1. Oh, so you can actually do both. Oh, okay. You can actually block in order to where like the first channel, the first go routine has to answer first. Or you can just block and say, once any of these 10 finishes, 
then like you know do something with the data and then wait so for in the case one. of seven zip you'd be interested in having it ordered right because you need to write it out ordered to the file typically right right but in other something you may not care right exactly first thing that gets done let me know because i want to start doing work again yep and so there's some things that are that make this really great so we'll talk about some of the strengths um one strength is that to turn uh, something from a function call, which is synchronous, so let's say you laid out your program as if you had written it in C, and it just said, for i equals 0 to 10, compress chunk i, and then for i equals 0 to 10, like, write chunk i. Like, you could write that in C, and it would just, like, use one, th one thread and one routine, and it would just execute in parallel, and it, or, or in, in sequence. And if you had any bugs, you would find them and things like that. Um, if you wrote it in Go, or if you wanted to change it into using more than one core, all you have to do is put the word Go in front of the function. Well, and you have to do the channel stuff, right? But the idea here is the channels will work and the functions will work without Go. So if you don't put the word Go, it'll only use one core and everything will run in sequence, which is great for debugging. And you know, your channels will, you know, obviously like your channel will completely fill up before you get to that stage where it empties because it'll do all 10 in blocking, right? But it's cool because you can test it and you can see if there are any bugs and things like that. Then all you do is you go in your code and you add go, go, go. And, and uh, you know, as long as you've done it right, all of a sudden now your program's using like all the cores on your machine and, uh, and it's running super fast. Um, but you know, most of the time when you get to that stage, it's already well tested, and so that whole like pipeline of development I found to be like really nice. Yeah, that is nice. Yeah. And the other thing is, because they're coroutines and not threads, you don't have to worry about using too many of them. So I mean, let's say um, you broke your file up into one meg chunks, and each chunk you tried to process in parallel. Well, if you use threads and I gave you like a 10 gigabyte file and you tried to create 10,000 threads, you'd uh -huh. crash the OS and yeah, it'd be a nightmare, right? But in Go, you can create 10,000 Go routines and they know, like the 9,998 of them would know you only have two cores, not to, you know, waste your time. And so they just sit there. So, so. so you talked about, I mean, maybe skipping ahead a little bit, you're just kind of getting to the strength. So, mm -hmm. so this... I mean, I even brought it up. This concurrency is kind of baked in. It's pretty nice. People seem to like it. It's, it's lightweight. Like, it's not a big chore to get it set up and working like yep. it can be in some languages. Um, and then you don't really have to worry about all this thread. And I need to start up a thread pool. And then I need to have a queue. And threads need to service the queue. And all that yep. kind of stuff is just taken care of, which is really nice because now that processors aren't really getting any faster, but we're getting more of them. Um, even like you know, phones now are going to have I think like four processors in them. Yep. And now they have those sixty-four core uh, oh, desktop man. processors. <laughs> it's just insane. Yeah. So those are strengths, but uh, with strengths come weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so one of the weaknesses is there's no generics, so it's yep. hard to write something that operates. Generics is what the Java name is in C or in C++ it's called templates yep. um, so this is like you write one function and it kind of knows how to operate on all sorts of different types that are passed in Yep. Um, and then the other thing is it's still pretty new um, and as with anything if you're going to try to use this at work I'm not going to vouch for I don't Google might vouch for it but I'm not going to vouch for like how reliable this is or how great it is or that it'll work so if you're trying to go to your boss and like, hey, I want to write this 
our entire startup company. We want to make it like based on Go. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that. That might be. You might be a genius five years from now, or you might ruin your startup and have <laughs> yeah. to rewrite all their when they have to rewrite all their code just because it doesn't have that track record, that history. But yeah. it is good for using. You know, like we always encourage people to find that little project or that little tool that you need to write and implement it in Go. Um, and then one day it will have that track record or. It'll mm-hmm. pass by the wayside. Everything starts at some point, right? Like, I mean, C++ used to be brand new and people laughed at it and said, nobody will ever use that. Yeah. Now it's like, what, what What did we do before C++? Or, you know, Java's becoming that same way. And, mm-hmm. You know, so C, or <laughs> so C, so Go, you know, maybe one day people will look back and be like, back when I was a kid, <laughs> yeah, Go my was day. a young whippersnapper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but it's interesting that you mentioned C++ because you know, just think how hard this stuff is. So, so remember the the people that go the Go language is going after, in my opinion, are the C, C plus plus, really low level. And to do this kind of stuff in C plus plus is super hard, right? I mean, even just threading. Like, I, I don't know about you, but anytime I've had to do uh, multi-threading, I've had to use Boost that. Thread because, like, Boost Thread has all this code which, um, like, wraps around this. Like, like it'll say, "Oh, I'm in Windows. I need to use." Uh, what is it called? The threading library in Windows. Win, uh, not WinSock. But oh, anyways, um, yeah, anyway, uses anyway. something. If you're in Linux, you uses pthread, or Mac uses pthread. You know, so you then if you want to do thread pools, you have to write the thread pool code yourself and handle that, and like make sure all the threads are like busy and like like you have to do all that yourself. It's just insane. And so, Go gives you all of that for free, and still gives you a lot of the constructs in C and C++ that, that low-level programmers really like. Yeah, I guess my point is, uh, is like I was saying, it's a track record thing, right? Yeah, so totally. You're, d- don't be surprised if your boss isn't gung-ho about it. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, or, you know, if you're in university, you know, writing a research paper in Go, it might be great, and there might be a lot of stuff to study, but the problem is, in 10 years from now, if your plan is to have that research paper be worse only in 10 years, you'd rather build on something that has you know, people kind of, it's trusted, it's well yep. known. And you know it's going to be, be there around. and yeah. the compiler will exist for future machines. Right, yeah, yeah, like C++, like, I mean, even if people stop writing code in it, there's just so much code that is written in it. Yep. Support somewhere by somebody it seems like it would just have to continue, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's why, like, C++ is so ubiquitous that the Android has the native development kit. And I think iPhone has something. Actually, iPhone C++ just works natively. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, like, these languages have stood the test of time long enough to where, you know, you could write something in C++ and someone could use it on Android, right? I mean, right now, you, that's not true with Go, and it might never be true. So I mean, it doesn't have its place. It's just not ready yet. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also, along those lines, there's not a lot of bindings for Go. So, in other words, um, let's say you wanted to use... Uh, let's 7-zip, for example. Let's say you wanted to use 7-zip inside your program and you're writing... So 7-zip well, 7-zip is written, source code. Uh, Part or library. Yeah, their, right, right. Program, yeah. So, so 7-zip is written in, in C++, but uh, if you wanted to use it in Java, um, there's a binding for it, which means that the 7-zip people, or maybe somebody else, some hobbyist, has gone in and written the glue code to access 7-zip um, in Java. C++ libraries from Java. And so, so Java has a ton of these bindings to, to other you know, libraries, but Go doesn't have any of this yet. Yep. So, yep. so, so uh, as far as tools go, um, there's 
two different compilers for Go? So many. Yeah, I mean, this. you know, I think this is common, right? Because uh, C++ was the same way. There yeah. was a number of different compilers. And then remember when there was... Uh, it's like Turbo C++. Well, there's still, are there many? I mean, you've got like the Microsoft compilers. You've got yeah. GCC. I mean, there are typically, you know, multiple compilers. And it's interesting that though one person, you know, essentially Google is developing Go and they still thought to release two compilers. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so in this case, the but actually the two compilers have different sort of use cases, I guess you could say, or different sort of applications. The regular Go compiler... Um, has a really fast compile time, but um, it has really slow. It has a, not really slow, but it's a slower runtime. And so, there's also a version called GCC Go, and what this does is, it runs like a Go preprocessor on the code. And so, for people who don't know, GCC is more than just a C compiler. It also does C++, obviously the G++, but it, there's a there's GCJ for Java. There's um, oh, there so everything it basically exists for like every yeah. There's language. I'm trying to think I I can't come up with another one, but I know there is at least yeah. One more. Almost every language. There's GCD for decompiling. So, anyways, so so all of them compile down to this intermediary code, which I don't know it has some name. And uh, so there's a front end, so you can have a different front end, mm -hmm. that, like you're saying, like a precompiler that, that yep. produces this output file of a certain format. Right that represents kind of the programming structure as opposed to the specific language. Right, exactly. And then there's the GCC backend, which can take things from GCJ, GCC, G++. It can take output from all, from all of these because they're all in the same format and just do a ton of like optimization. Crazy like research-based optimization. Yeah, like, like, oh, this for loop could be unfurled or unrolled. This one can't. And there's some crazy branching we can do here to try both branches, et cetera. So, um, so GCC Go is, has a Go front end with the GCC back end. And because it's doing all this crazy, funky stuff, it takes longer to compile, but then it should, in theory, run faster. So, so you can, when you're doing the interactive, like, try something, run it, try something, run it, you can do the fast compile times, you don't waste a lot of your time. Yep. But then when you're ready to kind of like, you know, start testing performance or tuning that, then you can switch over to the, the GCC Go. Yeah, totally, totally. Nice. Uh, yeah, another cool tool is, uh, this is more of, I guess, a doc than a tool, but uh, it's organizing Go code. I found this really useful. I've been writing Go for the past, like, few weeks. And uh, I found this kind of useful in sort of laying out, understanding, you know, what is a package and what's a package supposed to contain. Because, you know, in languages like C++ and Go, the package, and even in Java, actually, like, I never quite understood, like, <laughs> Like, you know, oh, I have 20 files. Should I try to group these files in different packages? Like, what's the limit, you know? Yeah. And so uh, it tries to address some of those, like, I guess, like, philosophical or maybe architectural questions. So, uh, yeah, yeah, those are some pretty good some pretty good tools to get people started. Yeah, I think yeah. we've got some. Uh, so, so you know, Go, it's it's new, but it's cool. It's good for a lot of, like, low-level systems. Like, we're talking about yep. like, applications, backend stuff, you know? Um, hope, hope, watch where it goes, you know? Yeah, I mean, think about if you write a server in Go. Um, you know, typically the way a server works is you have some kind of thread pool and then people access your um, your server, like somebody hits your website and it looks for an open thread to service like that web request, right? So pretty much everything you do on the web that's server side or anything you do that has to service a lot of customers relies on some kind of thread pool. 
And as we mentioned, uh, you know, in C++, there is no thread pool. You have to write that yourself. So this stuff in Go becomes very easy. Like if somebody hits your website and it has a Go backend, you just kick off a Go routine. And you don't worry about, oh, if a million people hit my website at the same time, I'll kill the operating system. You know? I go really slow. Yeah, I mean, you know, that person, that millionth person they hit the website, you know, they might not get service. The request, like the browser might tell them that this website is not available. Uh, you know, and there's, you can actually, before kicking off the Go routine, you could check and things like that. But the important thing is that you're doing something really low level, but you don't run the risk of blowing up the operating system, right? I mean, that's sort of the nice thing about it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We've gotten some awesome feedback about our Java episode. People yeah. like that. People have some comments, and we read them all. We don't always reply, or at least not expediently, to all of our stuff. We do read <laughs> yeah. them. We are listening. We're paying attention to some new languages people have yeah. written and asked for. The yeah, queue totally. is growing. Our, it's not first in first out, I guess maybe it's a priority queue. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Time. But uh, yeah. the languages are growing faster than we're actually recording them. So. Yeah, we definitely are going to spend the next like few episodes getting back to some of those requests. So. Yeah, but uh, thanks for all the feedback. As always, you can find us on our Google Plus page or yep. email us at programmingthrowdown at gmail.com. Yeah, if you write any cool programs in Go, um, definitely you know <laughs> post us a link or something. You yeah. know, tell yeah. us uh, Tell us about them. All right. Well, until next time. See you guys later. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.